0: Hey everyone, welcome to Wellness in Chaos podcast
1: your safe space for navigating well-being in today's fast-moving world.
0: I'm Maria, the first skin positivity influencer in Ukraine.
1: And I'm Dmitro, a marketing expert who lost over 20 kilos.
0: Join us as we explore topics like dating, body positivity, psychology, nutrition, career and more.
1: Our mission is simple – to inspire you to lead a healthier and more conscious life. Join us and our awesome guests for life-changing conversations.
2: In this episode. Eating disorders are the second most deadly disease next to opioid overdoses. It's a really deadly disease that's actually glamorized in our society. I have had clients stop working with me because they... Diagnosed eating disorder and disordered eating. What is the difference? So even if someone looks Fine on the outside, we can't really tell just from outside appearance what their health status is.
1: You could uh, mention some of the most common eating disorders.
2: Top three eating disorders that you'll likely hear about is we don't label foods as good or bad. Instead, we just sort of see foods as neutral. I'm a dietitian. I eat at McDonald's. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I don't mind it. I like it. I'll do it. I I eat I eat everything honestly. Obesity is not a indicator of being unhealthy. Serena Williams, the tennis player, is technically in the overweight category of BMI, and I don't think anyone's going to be calling her as a professional athlete as unhealthy. I have three things that people should avoid completely. Those three things are... What is your opinion on sugar?
0: Is it dangerous as cocaine? Is it a true addiction? I saw once on your Instagram stories that you were buying uh, a milk, a chocolate bar.
1: So Hello, welcome to our podcast, Wellness in Chaos. And today we have someone special on our podcast, Kristen Kiso, right?
2: Yep. Kiso, her, yeah. yep.
1: yeah, we have someone special on our podcast, Kristen Kiso. And a dietitian nutritionist, she is a queen of intuitive eating who hates the word diet Mm
0: -hmm. yeah she helped thousands of people to fix her relations with food and overcome all types of eating disorders and today we are thrilled to dive into all the important things of dieting with kristen so let's get started thanks (laughs) yeah let's get started
1: (laughs) yeah okay kristen so first question Mm -hmm. uh what's your motivation behind doing what you are doing and why it is important.
2: Well, I'm really motivated to do what I do. And I believe that my work is important because we can't live without food. It's an essential part of us. We literally cannot survive without it. And there's also not many people out there who are properly trained in nutrition. You know, it's sort of a nuanced area with food. like. When there's something wrong with our teeth, we know we go to a dentist. When there's something wrong with our knee, we go to an orthopedic doctor. But the second that food is involved, for some reason, we go to Google, we go to an Instagram influencer. And that puts a lot of pressure on ourselves that we are a problem that needs to be fixed. Um, And this leads to a lot of fear and actually a lot of misinformation. So I'm really motivated to do the work I do because... I want to help people get rid of that fear around food and just remove the stress around food and eating and not see ourselves as a problem anymore. And I'm also really motivated to do what I do because unfortunately dieting and diet culture, it does disproportionately affect women. It affects men too. Don't get me wrong. Disordered eating and body image is definitely something that needs to be talked about more with men. But I'm personally motivated because I've seen family members, friends, and even like I'm not immune to it myself. So many people are struggling with disordered eating body image. And it's typically because food is thought to be shameful. Um, But I believe that we can work on respecting ourselves, respecting the food we eat and respecting our bodies. And I hope to help people kind of overcome those challenges and just see food in more of a neutral stance instead of something that should be feared.
1: Yeah, amazing. Because it's probably one of the mo- most uh, uh, controversial topic what we have because there are so many experts in nutrition who tell, like, different stories and you don't know who to trust, right? Yeah, it's, it's really easy.
0: challenging. Kristen, is there any personal story behind why did you decide to... Uh, become like to work in this area of nutrition and diets what was your personal motivation
2: yeah i well so i grew up as a ballet dancer so that's sort of there's a lot of um there's a lot of assumptions made when you're a ballet dancer your your body really needs to be perfect and a lot of ballet dancers have eating disorders i feel lucky that I never experienced that. I grew up in a very um, positive household related to food and my parents were never judgmental about what I ate. Um, They really just sort of let me be me, but that didn't always, that didn't always protect me from the societal views of how I should look as even a teenager. And I think growing up in the United States, especially, I grew up in kind of a standard American suburban culture. (laughs) And um, I'm also a millennial. And I think a lot of millennials in particular are victims of diet culture. And so I just remember growing up And every month hearing about a different diet and every week seeing, oh, this person's too thin, this person's too fat, um, just judgment around that. And I've had really close friends suffering with eating disorders. And I wanted to actually be a psychologist um, who particularly helped eating disorders. But then I started working in my university's psychology center and realized I didn't want to be a therapist anymore, so that, but I was, but I still wanted to work in the field of eating disorders and nutrition and, um, being a dietitian just seemed like the best fit. And, um, I think that's just seeing the impact of diet culture, seeing the impact of nutrition and how it can negatively impact people. That was a real personal motivator for me.
0: Mm -hmm. thank you so much and you call yourself as an anti-diet dietitian right yeah (laughs) is that the reason why you call yourself in such a way
2: yeah i i call myself an anti-diet dietitian because Diets don't work. (laughs) Um, You know, if diets worked, there wouldn't be a new groundbreaking diet every year. If diets worked, the diet industry wouldn't be profitable. Um, So, and I really believe that at the core of diets, they are restrictive. And they're not sustainable for the average person. Um, for most people going on a diet can give sort of that short term satisfaction. It can provide short term um, weight loss typically, but for most diets and for most people, I of course, don't want to completely generalize because there's always exceptions. But for most people, diets don't create manageable, sustainable habits that can um, leave room for long-term growth and like mentally and feeling good in your own body. Um, and they also don't really give room for flexibility. Um, so Mm -hmm. I prefer to give my clients freedom with their food choices. I like to remind my clients that we are human. We are not robots. (laughs) And I think that diets kind of maybe expect us to be robots. So, um, I really, instead of providing diets to my clients, I really prefer to give them flexibility with their food choices, flexibility to listen to their bodies and just provide that no nonsense nutrition knowledge to help them make informed decisions about their health because at the end of the day, that's gonna provide those long-term sustainable goals so they are feeling good in their own body, for the long-term, not just having the short-term satisfaction. Mm-hmm. So
1: you're kind of, instead of giving your clients a diets, you're giving them a lifestyle, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And just kind of finding, helping them discover what works for them. I, I think taking an individualistic approach is really the best way. You know, you, any diet is um, very general. It's mm-hmm. not individualized. And each person is a different body. What's going to work for me isn't going to work for you, vice versa. So I think that's another reason why diets don't work is they don't make it individual.
1: Okay. I just want to clarify what, uh, what does uh, diet mean? The word diet.
2: Yeah. So I think the word diet is really kind of giving A guide for what people should eat typically for weight loss that's the standard meaning of diet is typically for weight loss Um, of course we could say there's a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet like that's a way of eating but when when I'm talking about diet in this way I'm talking about like restrictive yeah weight loss intended type of diets
1: okay okay And talking about your clients uh, Mm -hmm. who do you help and uh, what is the main problems that uh, your clients want you to help them with
2: yeah so i am a dietitian who specializes in eating disorders disordered eating and um, intuitive eating education but i am trained as a general dietitian with this specialty in eating disorders so people come to me for um, eating disorder recovery, but they also come to me for gastrointestinal distress, needing help with nutrition related to sports. Um, and Or I have people coming to me if they have some sort of chronic condition like diabetes or hypothyroidism. Um, So I I see a wide range of clients, um, but currently many of my clients either currently have an active eating disorder or maybe they previously had one and there's still some kind of lingering, um, lingering disordered eating that they need some support with. Um, But actually some of my most interesting clients come to me looking to help them with weight loss and then they expect me to tell them, oh, you need to cut calories, don't eat sugar, like kind of the standard things when you think about a nutritionist or a dietitian, the standard things that you think that they would say. Um, but in reality, I sort of help them give a new perspective and a new way of thinking about food. And it's intimidating at first. And I have had clients stop working with me because they sort of are hoping for me to sell them a quick fix. And instead what I'm actually selling is sort of a shift in mindset. It's building a healthier relationship with food, which is scary for a lot of people. Um, But even people who don't come to me specifically for disordered eating help, a lot of people struggle with binge eating. A lot of people struggle with um, just not having a healthy relationship with food and having a lot of food rules and restrictions and, restricting and bidging rinse and repeat type of deal. So even if people don't come to me specifically for those Mm. issues, we typically end up working on them anyways. Uh, so long story short, I'm a general dietitian, but I really do have this specialty in eating disorders and disordered eating.
1: So many of your clients, they can be in a good physical shape, but they still need your help with all those disorders, right?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, there are many people that if you look at them from the outside, they probably look like a typical healthy person. But then when I talk to them, they'll express restricting throughout the day and then really binging in the evening and having really poor mental health and just kind of being obsessive about food, which that in general is... Not a that's not healthy, so even if someone looks fine on the outside, we can't really tell just from outside appearance what their health status is.
0: It feels like when people are already restricted on on their own, they decide okay, I'm not eating this or that, then they search for support from dietitian who will tell them even to restrict more, they're searching for it. They're searching for more restrictions, for more limitations, to suffer more in the result. It's a way of uh, um, self-harm, I would say, because I I was uh, in this shoes for many years, for eight mm-hmm. years, with orthorexia, uh, searching for another way to restrict myself, what to eliminate from my diet not to get acne so as a result i was scared Mm -hmm. to eat apples like Mm -hmm. just basic stuff i was scared extremely to eat fruits uh not mentioning bread or pasta or other things and uh, when you go to such professional like you and you hear no actually you don't need to restrict you get anxious like your world is crashing the system you were building for many years that is in your brain doesn't work anymore, and you are disappointed, and you want to leave. That's so why, like I'm thinking, as your possible client, uh, client uh, several years ago, <laughs> and I can understand them. Yeah, and uh, this combination of your psychological background plays a huge role, I think, in your career, uh, because uh, as you mentioned, you offer people lifestyle, not a nutrition plan plan for seven days.
2: Yeah, it's interesting that I changed my whole career path in order to not be a therapist, but I feel like I ended up kind of being a food therapist anyways. So I think I came back to the start anyways. But yeah, everything that you're saying makes complete sense when you are stuck in that cycle of um, restricting and not really sure where to go, it's natural to seek out people who probably have the same views as you and will probably reinforce the behaviors that you're having. Um, But with my background and my training, I know that intuitive eating and having a healthy relationship with food, it's, it's evidence based. There's data to back it up. And for most diets, there's no data to back it up for most restrictions, if you, as long as you don't have an allergy or some kind of major gastrointestinal disorder, if you don't have IBS, if you don't have any kind of disease, you're just a healthy person. Restricting actually is not going to be beneficial for you. So it, but it's scary because like you said, it's the society that we live in. It's the structure that we built in our heads and that we've built in our society. And so kind of cracking that ceiling and breaking through a little bit it's it's a huge huge step and i i give a lot of respect um to people like like yourself that just shared your story because it's it's not easy to to break out of that mindset
0: exactly and you mentioned uh, many times uh two words like two symptoms or diagnosis Uh, Diagnosed eating disorder and disordered eating. What is the
2: difference between? It's a fine line between those two. So uh, diagnosed eating disorders are, you know, the standard ones that we know and talk about anorexia, bulimia, binge eating um, uh, types of diagnosed disorders like that. And a diagnosed eating disorder I, I would say that it's one that starts to affect you medically. So you get a low heart rate, you have low blood pressure, you're feeling dizzy. Um, people can even go into kidney failure, liver failure, all from these diagnosed eating disorders. But on the other hand, disordered eating is more of the behavior, whereas an eating disorder is the diagnosis. So everyone that has an eating disorder has disordered eating but not everyone that has disordered eating has a diagnosed eating disorder. Um, So disordered eating, it can be described as um, just irregular eating patterns, not having that healthy relationship with food, restricting um, binge binge eating, those are all um, disordered eating patterns, but not everyone who has those disordered eating patterns has a diagnosed eating disorder. But disordered eating, um, is something that's rampant in our society. And I think a lot more people have it than we actually realize or report on.
1: Mm-hmm. And can someone alone fix a uh, disorder eating or this diagnosed eating disorder, or they should uh, uh, ask for specialists to help them? And what would you recommend for people to... Uh, what would what you recommend for people who want to start uh, working on these issues?
2: So, of course, it's possible that people can fix their disordered eating or eating disorders on their own. It's nothing's out of the question. (laughs) Um, And I have seen people who have been successful in treating their eating disorders on their own. But for most people, and especially if those disordered eating patterns start becoming medical issues, um, which happens for a lot of people, I would absolutely recommend a combination of seeing a dietitian and a therapist and especially if you're starting to have those medical issues having a medical doctor on your team as well is really really important so they can monitor your vital signs so they can monitor other medical symptoms to make sure that you don't you're not in a really critical state you know eating disorders are the second most deadly disease next to opioid overdoses and not many people know that, but that's just that it's so it, it's a really deadly disease that's actually glamorized in our society. I don't maybe not so much anymore, but definitely in the past. And I I think that it's really hard for people to reach out for help, especially men. So being and it's probably kind of easy to think, oh, I can just do this on my own. It's mm-hmm. it's just food, I can just eat. But when you are so deep in your eating disorder, it's never that simple. So if someone is really struggling, it, there's no, no shame and no harm in going to your medical doctor, seeing a therapist, seeing a dietitian, seeing all three <laughs> if, if you need, um, because they are severe and life-threatening illnesses that need to be taken seriously. For yeah.
0: example, there is a person and uh, they don't know if they have eating disorders or not. What are their first symptoms to look for
2: to understand that that's your issue as well? Yeah, um, it's actually really interesting. Most people don't realize that they are sick. The The person who has the eating disorder, they likely aren't realizing that they're losing weight. They're likely not realizing that they're becoming sick. And usually it's a family member, it's a friend, it's a teacher, it's somebody outside that recognizes that something's going on because the person doesn't realize what's happening um, until it's kind of too late. So typical signs, like medical signs to look out for are, Probably one of the first ones that starts to come up is when you stand up, like when you go from lying down in your bed to standing up, you immediately feel dizzy and you start um, like having, like you start blacking out or you even pass out. But that dizziness um, is caused by your blood pressure and your heart rate start at your, your blood pressure dropping and your heart rate increasing when you go from lying to standing. And that is a, one of the first symptoms that start coming up for a person that has an eating disorder. And then, of course, you can tell if a person is losing weight, if they start wearing different types of clothing to cover their bodies, if they're skipping lunch when they normally would always eat lunch. Um, these are all symptoms to look out for. And if you notice it in a friend or a family member, it's always helpful just to check in
1: wanted to add, like, we're talking about eating disorders, uh, but maybe some people don't understand what is this. Maybe you could uh, mention some of the most common eating disorders, like maybe three top.
2: Yeah. So top three eating disorders that you'll likely hear about is we don't label foods as good or bad. Instead, we just sort of see foods as neutral. Anorexia nervosa, which is primarily... Restriction, restriction based. And then there's bulimia nervosa, which is primarily binging and purging, with also probably some restriction based. And what I mean by binging, um, when I say that word, it means eating with a sense, with a loss of a sense of control. So you are just. It typically involves eating a large amount of food that's more than a typical person would be comfortable eating and then typically purging which means either throwing up or using laxatives either one is considered a purge there's also exercise based purging so if someone is extremely extremely exercised that can also be considered a form of purging and then so those are sort of the top two that you'll hear the most about and the third most common, if not maybe <laughs> more common, is binge eating, which is that binging, that sense of loss, losing control when you eat, um, but without the restriction, without the purging.
0: I used to have binge eating too.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's really common for a lot of people and people sometimes don't even realize that they are binging until they start talking about it.
1: Yeah, actually, I have a friend, and uh, we go to the gym t- together. And he works, co- wo- he works, wo- uh, works out quite a lot. Like uh, he's he sweating out in the gym. And they ask him why, why he, why you're doing so mu- so much cardio. And he said because he likes food and he eats a lot, and that's why he works out that much to allow himself to eat that mm. much.
2: Yeah. So it's not exercising for the sake of health or for feeling good in your own body. It's to give yourself the reward of food.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a vicious cycle.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: When I was going to the gym for the last year, usually I said I like going to the gym because I like food. Because I was Mm -hmm. eating quite a lot. Not like a lot, a lot, but uh, still. Uh, consuming maybe more than I needed and I was like yeah I will go to the gym anyway and I will lose all the calories there Mm -hmm. still I was enjoying um, sports and activities, exercises but this thought was still in my mind that it will be like uh, that I will pay for Mm -hmm. everything I ate,
2: Uh, Mm -hmm. I will
0: pay my cost uh, sweating a lot in the gym
2: yeah it it kind of reframes exercise as a form of punishment. Yes. Yeah, it's that's super common and you see it you see it a lot especially in cases like yourself like when more of those orthorexic tendencies like it's it's that we talk about having a healthy relationship with food but having a healthy relationship to your body and healthy relationship to exercises just as important um Dmitry, i know that you go
0: sometimes to the gym two times per day <laughs>
2: sometimes,
1: yeah.
0: um do you consider it's like for your joy i'm not i don't want to give any diagnostics right now for Dmitro, but i just want to know your christian <laughs> opinion <laughs> yeah
1: so i go there just because i enjoy it sometimes when i work in the city center I go to the gym just because I want to have some uh, stretching after working day, and sometimes it makes me feel happy and relaxed. Not because I want to lose weight or anything like this, just because I want to feel relaxed.
2: That's amazing. I really, I really like that um, perspective of sort of seeing exercises sort of your your hobby. It's just a way to unwind. It's a way to de stress. Some people read a book or watch Netflix and you go to the gym. That's your way of de-stressing. I feel the same way. I, I really I really see exercise as the way to kind of take a deep breath at the end of a long day. Yeah,
1: gym, gym is my religion,
2: Love.
1: <laughs> me.
0: Kristen, I know that intuitive eating, like intuitive eating and health at every size frameworks is a core of your work with clients. So what is intuitive eating and why did you decide to focus uh, on it, on intuitive eating uh, instead of preparing meal plans for your clients and asking to
2: count calories? So intuitive eating, um, to give a sort of general definition of what it is. Intuitive eating is the approach to eating that focuses on the body's response to natural hunger cues, natural fullness cues, satisfaction. And it really aims to create a positive relationship with food as opposed to just pursuing food as a form of weight control, we can say. So also another aspect of intuitive eating is not, there's no, there's no judgment around foods or no, and no judgment around yourself and your own body. So you, and we create a mentality that all foods can fit into a well-balanced diet. So there's no superiority or judgment with certain types of food. And I really decided to focus on this area of nutrition because intuitive eating is evidence-based. There is a lot of data and science and research studies that show that this method of eating can create a positive relationship with food and even lower symptoms of depression. It can lower issues with body image and um, really just reduce that anxiety that we have around food, which can also then in turn reduce those disordered eating behaviors. Um, And, that's that's not quite to say that intuitive eating means you never think about food at all <laughs> because yeah. you do, people need to think about food. It's, it's just what we have to do to survive because we need to think about when our next meal is. Um, that's just kind of primitive, but we don't need to be obsessive about food. So in, in, and not obsessive about what time we're eating or making sure that we're eating the exact same thing every day to make sure that we're getting all of our macros in, you know, It's instead really creating this positive relationship with food, listening to your body, accepting that there are fluctuations throughout the week, throughout the day, and just kind of um, having that acceptance and freedom to eat as you would like. Mm -hmm. And uh, other methods like giving a strict meal plan or counting calories, it might actually increase disordered eating and increase body image dissatisfaction for some people. So I, and and there's really no evidence to suggest that that works. So I decided to focus on more of that relationship with food and go with the evidence-based process and really finding, helping people find self-worth outside of the food, outside of the way that their body looks.
1: Yeah. And talking about uh, counting calories, when it actually makes sense to count calories? In, in what situation? In what cases?
2: That's a good question. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a reason. I
0: know that Dmitro counts his calories. Sometimes he sends some screenshots to me and I, <laughs> I'm replying, Dmitro, I understand nothing.
2: <laughs> I, so Uh, how my perspective on all of this is that food and nutrition is very nuanced. Like I said in the beginning, um, it's individual. So if counting calories works for you and you don't feel obsessive about it and you feel like still a positive relationship with food, who am I to say that counting calories is bad? Um, If it works for you, that's great. <laughs> so I, I can't, but I can't think of a specific reason where I would actually recommend counting calories for, for a person.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because for me, it just, uh, it gives me an understanding how much I eat. Like mm-hmm. I wouldn't count calories like this, the whole life. It just gives me the initial understanding of, of how much I eat and how much I need to feel uh, satisfied and fulfilled.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's a good way to maybe judge what is creating satisfaction with you. Um, Maybe I would I would probably always encourage people to do a little test run to see how it would feel to not count calories for a week and just listen to your body because your body is going to be able to tell you when you are full, when you are satisfied it might not work immediately because it does take some mindfulness. It does take some self-reflection, but at the end of the day, our bodies are super smart. They want to keep you in a state of homeostasis. They want to keep you where your body's set point is supposed to be. So maybe have a little experiment with yourself, <laughs> see how it would feel.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So probably like uh, every approach works differently for every person. They should just experiment with their... Own body and see what they like the most, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm not one to to judge. I I think that what works for some people isn't going to work for others. Um, what my my concern always is is when people start getting into that obsession and when people when it starts taking up a lot of brain space because a lot of the clients that I see they're just thinking about food all the time. It's, and it's affecting their work, it's affecting their relationships, it's affecting their mental health. And when that starts to happen, that's when we start going into that obsessive area and probably something that we're doing isn't working. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Um, talking about uh, intuitive eating, I know some individuals may misinterpret it as a license to eat wherever they need, like wherever they want and not considering uh, nutritional needs. And it may, it, it may also lead to lack of uh, weight stability and uh, it's going to be hard to implement it. Like what would you recommend for people who actually want to succeed in intuitive eating?
2: Yeah. So to respond to the, the first part of the question about um, people misinterpreting intuitive eating as a license to eat whatever they want, I, if there is anybody who thinks that, then I would strongly encourage them to actually review and read the steps of intuitive eating because the last step of intuitive eating is called honoring your health. That's the name of that step. And in this step, you consider the actual nutritional value of food, not in a judgmental way, but in a way that recognizes the real reason why we eat, which at the end of the At the end of the day it is to nourish our body. So intuitive eating actually does consider nutritional needs. Um, The struggle with why people fail to succeed with intuitive eating, it's because they don't embrace and follow the steps before that. So before we talk about nutritional value, before we even talk about how much protein you need in a day, for example, you really need to work on that relationship that you have with food, because that's going to be your core. And then we add the nutritional value on top. So and one of the most common things that I hear from my clients is that they don't have the willpower to succeed in intuitive eating. And that's typically around those snack foods, dessert types of foods, you know, stereotypical, you know, unhealthy types of foods. Um, And I spend a lot of time with these clients unpacking why this is. And pretty much 100% of the time, these types of foods that people feel a lack of willpower around are foods that they're restricting, foods that they are fearful of. These are the foods that people say, oh, if I eat this, I'm a bad person. If I eat this, then I'm going to get fat. And that puts a lot of pressure and a lot of power into that food item. And what a lot of the work that I then do is to take the power away from the food and instead start seeing the cookie as just a cookie. It doesn't have to be something that's going to make you fat. It can just be a cookie and we can leave it at that. So that if someone wants to be successful with intuitive eating, that is what they need to focus on first and then focus on actually adding the nutritional value later, because that is all part of the process At the end of the day, intuitive eating is a way to make you feel good. And no one is going to feel good if they're eating McDonald's for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's just a fact. (laughs) And even if a person may want to eat McDonald's for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, it's having that knowledge to know that that is actually not going to be the most beneficial for them. Not restricting the McDonald's, still allowing it to be part of your balanced diet, but having having balance outside of those foods that we maybe consider a little tricky.
1: Yeah, and I guess some people, they simply enjoy eating fast food, like even going to McDonald's and they will be super happy with a white smile on their face, but they will be just lacking this uh, um, nutrition uh, literacy about uh, how this food is actually affecting their body in the long term.
2: For sure. Hey. I'm a dietitian. I eat McDonald's. (laughs) I do. I don't mind it. I like it. I'll do it. I I eat eat everything, honestly. Um, And I can say, you know, I just came back from the United States. It was just Thanksgiving and I was visiting my family. I was going into the city. I was going to New York. I don't think I ate a home-cooked meal the entire month. Mm. And did I feel my best? Absolutely not. Did I have a great time? Yes. (laughs) Yes, time, <laughs> but that is not going to be my life. I know that this is a special occasion. I'm with my family. I'm with my friends. I'm going to embrace everything that I'm going to experience there because I don't. I'm not there all the time. I don't do this all the time. But I can tell you, the first day that I got back home, I my body was craving for me to just make a home cooked meal and have that those standard routines that I always have. So I think that's maybe a good example of just kind of giving yourself the flexibility, but also having the knowledge of, okay, this isn't my life forever. And I know what my body needs. And what my body needed at the time was to go to Chipotle. (laughs) That is what my body needed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like people are scared sometimes not just of food, for example, just cookie, but they are scared of the consequences that they will not be able to accept their body in different shape. Uh, I feel like it's not the uh, result, yeah, just chocolate cookie or McDonald's, but they are scared that their uh, their body will change forever and... And the result, they won't be able to fix that. Especially for females when our body changes uh, every month, every cycle, something is going on. Yeah.
2: It's it's tough. It's tough. And this is sort of... So there, one, one thing that I work with my clients on is, especially my eating disorder clients who do need to gain weight in order to be medically stable again, so many of them are so nervous about the way that their body might look when they're healthy again. Or even for people who don't have a diagnosed eating disorder, people are worried about what their body is going to look like if they actually start giving themselves the allowance to eat what they want to eat. It's really scary because I can't tell them what they're going to look like They don't know what they're going to look like. No one can. We can't predict the future. But what we do know is that not having an obsession with food is going to be in the long run better for their mental health. So I would really encourage people to consider sort of at what, like what are you sacrificing in order to maybe have this perfect body or what are you sacrificing in order to um, have – A scale tell you an arbitrary number that actually doesn't mean anything. And the other sort of philosophy that I work under is body neutrality. So there's the body positivity movement, which I think is amazing and works for a lot of people. But being positive about your body isn't realistic all the time. We don't... And... Like, I don't love my body all the time. I'm sure everyone else doesn't love their body all the time. And it's really realistic. It's unrealistic to say that you need to love your body all the time because you don't need to love all parts of your body all the time in order to live a productive life. But if you can just look at yourself in a neutral way, just like how we can look at foods in a neutral way and just say, this is the way my body looks today. Full stop. Period. That can actually be much more easier for the mind to handle, and actually help people's mental health and help people's acceptance of their bodies and food, especially yeah. when they might be going through these changes.
1: Yeah, and for someone who is extremely obese, do you think it's good to follow this uh, body positivity philosophy?
2: So i I don't really love the phrase body positivity all the time i more so go with the body neutrality because if someone wants to be positive about their body go for it that's amazing but i i don't usually encourage that for many of my clients i more so go with that neutral stance Um, but this is also where sort of my other philosophy which is health at every size this when this really comes into play and Health at every size, what that philosophy is, is it sort of rejects the idea that we need to be thin in order to be healthy. Because as we know, people might look really thin and look really healthy on the outside, but we actually don't know what's going on in them. They might be restricting and binging. We have no idea. So this is where um, health at every size can mean that no matter what your body type is, you can be healthy no matter what. And whether intuitive eating is, is good for someone who's extremely obese, this is a nuanced conversation. So I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. Um, but the term obesity is just a BMI category. It's just your weight in, in kilograms over height in meters squared. That is what that is what BMI is, and that's what that term obesity means. Obesity is not an indicator of being unhealthy. It's just where you are on the BMI scale. I mean, Serena Williams, the tennis player, is technically in the overweight category of BMI, and I don't think anyone's going to be calling her as a professional athlete as unhealthy. So if someone in a larger body is struggling with disordered eating, then there's no reason why they can't benefit from intuitive eating as if someone in a larger body is not having any clinical diagnosed health problems like high blood pressure high cholesterol diabetes anything like that then me as a health professional if they're coming to me and my and they're my client my main course of action would not be to automatically direct them towards a weight loss path instead I would look at their lifestyle, look at their eating habits, their beliefs about food, how they're sleeping, their physical activity, everything else related in their life, and help this person make sustainable behavioral changes that will create a positive impact on their health. Um, so I would say regardless of body type, anyone can benefit from intuitive eating.
1: hmm
0: And uh, I want to ask you, is there any difference in eating habits in the USA and Germany from your experience?
2: So I was just in the US for a month (laughs) and I really noticed that a lot of people have this all or nothing mentality around food. Um, So for example, that means never eating sweets or snack foods on weekdays and then basically binging on the weekends because that's the only time that they allow themselves to eat this food. Um, And so I think I'm, I'm again, just generalizing. I'm not saying that this is everyone in the US, but in general, I, I noticed that a lot more in the US. And in Germany, I've lived here for two years now, and the first thing that I noticed is that it's so common for people here to go to a cafe in the middle of the day and have a coffee and an entire slice of cake just to themselves and there's no concern there's no judgment there's and there's no question about oh i'm going to restrict my lunch today or i'm not going to eat dinner today because i had a cake today it to make the it, they don't try to make the cake fit into their into their habits or into their food routines, it just is. They're just having it. And I i think that would be a little, that would be a little groundbreaking in the US. <laughs> people don't really do that. Um, I also noticed that more people here in Germany are possibly more motivated to cook and cook for themselves at home. But I think That's also a nuanced conversation. I think there's a lot more factors in play there, like socioeconomic status, education, work-life balance, you know, child care availability. That's much more, um, it's much more accessible here in Germany than in the U.S. So I don't think it's always just a black and white matter of um, people in Germany are healthier than the U.S. I think it's a larger conversation than that.
0: Uh, yeah, it's about economical situation, social situation. It's so different. Yeah, yeah. it feels like Germany gives somehow oh, like this uh, stability and safety in some <laughs> matters. Yeah.
2: yeah, Germany really does provide a lot of a lot of safety, a lot of security, and um, it's it's not always. We don't always think that giving access to childcare for free. Will affect people's health but it might because it might give people more time it might give people more freedom to go to the grocery store more frequently or make a home-cooked meal for themselves it's there's there's always a, a larger conversation to have around nutrition than just this place is good this place is bad mm-hmm. exactly exactly yeah
1: kristen do you think uh, people in europe are more active than in
2: u.s I, I do think so. And again, larger conversation too, because uh, when I was just in the US for a month, so where my parents live, my parents live in a very traditional suburb outside of Philadelphia and we drive everywhere, not because we want to, but because we have to. Like the, the, My grocery store near my parents is probably only a kilometer away but we have to drive there because there aren't any sidewalks (laughs) there. It would be unsafe if I walked to the grocery store and that's just, that's just the way of life. You have to drive everywhere. So whereas living in Europe and I mean, I live, I live in a city now, I live in Hamburg. So it's very, it's a very walkable city. We walk everywhere here. People are riding their bikes. If someone was riding a bike where I grew up, we would think that they're crazy because it's not safe. There's no places to ride a bike. So I would say in general, just because of the way of living, the lifestyle is just more active in Europe. And I I can't speak to other countries because I've only lived in Germany, but at least in Germany, I do notice a more active lifestyle in that way.
1: So your insurance lifestyle you have in Hamburg more than you had in the U.S., right?
2: I think I do I think I do <laughs> I, I I did live in uh, the city of Philadelphia for 10 years before moving to Germany, so I did walk a lot there um, but i I think it's still I, I still had to take my car a lot of places I, I I had to own a car even though I was living in the city, whereas now I have lived in Hamburg for two years and I've never needed a car. <laughs> Yeah.
0: According to Grand View uh, Research, the global nutritional supplements market size was estimated 381.5 billion dollars last year in 2022, and was expected to grow of 6.3% uh, compared to the previous year. Kristen, in your opinion, how does it affect overall well-being system and uh, once you said food first uh, supplements later could you expand a little bit more on this topic
2: yeah so i'm i'm a dietitian my job is food so that's why i go with the statement of food first Because for most people, most healthy people who don't have any major medical problems, no gut absorption problems, and if they're eating a balanced diet, you likely don't need supplements. But of course, supplements can do amazing things for people. I mean, we live in Hamburg and it's getting dark really early, so... I would probably recommend for people to take a vitamin D supplement if they're not getting vitamin D in their diet, or if maybe they didn't spend, they haven't been spending too much time in the sun. Um, so supplements can be really helpful. And if you are vegan, for example, you need absolutely need a B twelve supplement. So I think sometimes food supplements can try to sell a quick fix for people, but if for most people, you are going to be able to get the majority of your nutrition just through food alone.
1: Mm-hmm. So, besides vitamin D three, if you need it, uh, you don't need much of uh, supplements. If you have just uh, uh, you're a healthy person and have usual uh, healthy diet, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think for for most people, um, you likely don't need a supplement. I mean, of course, if you are a woman who is vegetarian and you are getting your period, you probably need an iron supplement because that's uh, iron deficiency is really common in women, especially if you're not eating some kind of meat protein and you're getting your period. Um, so there are supplements that there are certain supplements that are really good for you. Um, like, so, like if you are a, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to give other examples like if you're a premenopausal woman or a menopausal woman who is eating primarily plant-based foods, you probably need vitamin D and calcium supplementation in order to have strong bone health. Like there are so many examples of people who do need supplements and I would I, I would recommend supplements for people, but if you are on average, typical healthy person eating a balanced diet no deficiencies you go to the doctor you're feeling good your blood work comes back okay you probably don't need a supplement mm-hmm.
1: but what if you're this kind of person no deficiencies everything is good but you also uh, do resistance training almost every day you need some uh, additional supplementation for this
2: so i think if you are somebody who is exercising a lot there are definitely supplements that you can consider like it's uh, like a protein supplement something like that or taking magnesium or iron something like that that could always be helpful just for kind of that muscle recovery um but i am not going to there's there's just not enough data to say that it's going to work absolutely 100 for everybody so like I said before, if, it's, if you're taking a supplement and it's working for you and you're feeling good and you don't mind spending that little bit of extra money, then go for it.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. And I have one question regarding uh, food, food permit. Mm. Uh, as, long as, as far as I know, it was created in uh, 1974. And uh, over this time, it was uh, changed several times. And I want to know your opinion about uh, healthy, balanced eating like the fundamentals of healthy, balanced eating?
2: Yeah, so the, the food pyramid tried its best. <laughs> it, it really tried its best. Um, and there are certain guidelines that we need to follow in order for our bodies to just function properly. Like there are certain rules that, it's, that everyone needs to follow in order to feel good. Like for most of us, we need to have about 40 to 50 percent of our calories from carbohydrates. And that can be from grains, starchy vegetables, fruit, what have you. Um, And we need the rest of our calories to come from protein and fat. And we also need to have, you know, a nice mixture of fruits and vegetables to get all of those wonderful micronutrients. But we also can't forget that food is supposed to bring joy. And some food might have more nutrition, some food might have less nutrition, but one isn't better or one isn't worse. They all have their benefits. So I really consider a balanced diet of, you know, following those general general rules um, that I mentioned before, but also allowing all types of food into your life without judgment and really just considering your own personal nutritional needs, what makes you feel good and what your body needs in order to just function properly. So your body is feeling good. You're able to feel energized. You're able to do the type of sports that you want to do. Your mental health isn't affected. Um, as, as long as that's in order, then you are eating a balanced diet. Kristen. And if
0: you, were needed to choose just only 15 products to eat for the rest of your life, what would you choose in this case?
2: Uh, I thought about this for so long. <laughs> so, number one. Number one thing that I could eat probably for the rest of my life is pasta. I love pasta. Wow. I, I could eat that forever. Um, so, that's one Um, chickpeas and black beans Mm -hmm. I love them (laughs) Uh, cheese cheese is I I have to do (laughs) I always have to eat cheese ice cream is a staple in this household (laughs) my husband and I eat a lot of ice cream Mm -hmm. Um, cucumbers probably kind of lame but I love cucumbers Um, hummus bread Mm -hmm. (laughs) mangoes I could eat mangoes forever uh, salmon, love salmon. Balsamic vinaigrette dressing, I, I put this on everything, <laughs> and, I, and I make my own. I will give you the recipe if you want. Um, yes, you want, <laughs> uh, ketchup, because I'm American. <laughs> Chocolate, coffee, and then number fifteen. There are these chips from Edica. That are like garlic bagel chips. We don't have them in the U.S. And oh, they're so good. They were the first I bought them this morning. They're so good. Oh, yeah. wow. You need to show me. Yeah, I'll send you a picture know. later. But if I think I could survive on those fifteen items.
1: Wow. How much meat?
2: I I don't eat too much meat, honestly. So I I used to be full vegetarian. And then when I started working in hospitals, I would eat at the, the cafeteria there. And sadly, the hospitals that I was working at didn't have too many vegetarian options. So I became more um, more flexible. Um, so I, I do eat meat. I don't eat a lot of meat at home. Um, I don't cook a lot of meat. That's just kind of personal preference. But when I go out to dinner and something looks good on the menu that has meat, I'll definitely eat that. But in general, um, we eat relatively more plant based at home.
1: Cool, cool.
2: I really
0: love your list. That it's not made from perfect products. You know, like perfect in terms of diet and nutrition. Uh, even like even before our current call, I share it in stories. That we are going to have a call with anti diet dietitian, and my friend replied, "Well, wow, really anti diet? Is it possible?" Uh, and this list is awesome. I think people would try to show themselves. Some of them from perfect side. I'm interested a lot in nutrition, Dmitra, as well. I think in our cases, we would try to make our list as perfect as possible. Dmitra, maybe I, I'm wrong about you, but in my case, yeah, like avocado, salmon, whole grain bread, um, and you no know, some green tea, no coffee, you know, like perfect. But your uh, your list, it's, it has so much freedom, to be
2: honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think that I do eat a relatively balanced diet, but that's balanced for me. And what, is go- what works for me isn't going to work for somebody else. And I'm sorry, if I don't have ice cream, if I don't have chocolate, my mental health is going to suffer <laughs> because it brings me joy. It, br- it makes me happy. I love at the end of the day, my husband and I, we sit down together, we eat some ice cream together, we talk about our day. That is healthy to me. That is balance and that brings me joy. And so I, and that's what I want to help provide to people because it's, it's a real shame to only see food as something that's- As fuel. Food. food is fuel, but it can also bring joy. It doesn't have to just be black or white. It doesn't have to be good or bad. You need to have some of that joy in, in your life.
1: Yeah, it can be like physical as well as emotional fuel.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. And are there any foods that you would uh, recommend to avoid completely?
2: I have three things that people should avoid completely. Those three things are foods you're allergic to, foods that are spoiled and will make you sick, and foods that you just don't like those are the only three things that you shouldn't eat everything else is allowed
1: (laughs) yeah actually i expected some more specific answer but it's okay
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah because i i am not i consider myself a food expert but i am not going to be the one to tell you what you should and should not eat because I don't have that answer only we, we can find that answer together through talking together, but I'm never going to say, you shouldn't eat a certain type of food because all foods in a balanced diet can fit into somebody's life.
1: Yeah. Cool. Cool. And, um, what are physical and emotional hunger and uh, how can someone tell them apart?
2: It can be tricky. It can be tricky to tell them apart. But physical hunger are, physical hunger is what changes in your body when you know that you need to eat. Um, and this is kind of more easy to recognize for some people, um, but it can be more challenging for others. So for for me personally, I know that I need to eat because I can physically feel my stomach growling. Sometimes I can hear it even. So that's when I know that I need to eat. I sometimes even get a headache when I'm feeling hungry. I can tell that I'm maybe a little bit more moody. My husband always jokes and says that he needs to carry around granola bars for me when we go out because I get grumpy when I'm hungry. Um, So those are kind of the more physical sensations of hunger. And then emotional hunger, you know, it has kind of a bad reputation because we are told that emotional hunger is only related to negative feelings of sadness, loneliness, those types of things. And typically we relate emotional hunger and emotional eating to binge eating. Um, However, I would argue that food is inherently emotional and emotional eating can be feelings of joy. Like when you go home and your mom makes her famous pie or whatever it is, you are going to have that piece of pie because it sparks an emotion in you. It's probably going to spark joy or nostalgia or whatever the case may be. That's also emotional eating. Um, now, if there's somebody who is talking to me about emotional eating, but it's more of a coping skill around negative emotions, so they're kind of coping with their emotions with food until they're feeling sick and they're uncomfortably full, then that's actually, that's, a, that's not actually emotional eating, that's not following their hunger and fullness cues, and instead that's an unhealthy coping mechanism that should be addressed with a therapist or a dietitian, preferably both. Um, But really you can only tell your physical and emotional hunger sensations apart by really taking the time to reflect on these physical sensations and the emotions that you have prior to, to a meal or a snack, after a meal or a snack, and just really being mindful about what we're eating and sort of approaching these eating occasions in a productive way.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually I used to have this emotional hunger. It's uh, t- my previous job. Sometimes it's a, I felt quite stressful. And then like, whenever I felt stressful, I wanted to eat something. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would go to my kitchen grab something, uh, maybe something uh, healthy as well, like maybe carrot, but it still was just uh, based on my, uh, stressful impulse.
2: Yeah, and that's super common for a lot of people is sort of going to the refrigerator, going to the snack cabinet when we're feeling stressed. And is, I mean, it's okay that that happens. You don't have to kind of put judgment on it. I think the the problems start to occur when it becomes a frequent coping mechanism where it starts to actually affect your health. And regarding
0: snacking as we start already this topic, what is your opinion on this? Because some nutrition experts say, no, you need to have fasting, uh, like short-term fasting, like, and eat uh, each four hours. Uh, some of them even recommend eat one, two times per day. Some of them say, no, it's okay to snack, and you can have, um, have uh, three Normal meals, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and plus two snacks. Whom to believe in this case? <laughs> uh,
2: the person you should believe is yourself <laughs> and how you're feeling. Um, I So I, I think that snacking can be a great thing to incorporate into people's lives. Um, many of my clients I recommend snacks for because... They're probably not eating enough during their meals. Uh, one really common, a uh, one common occurrence that I see is that people are eating a super small breakfast in the morning, and that's because they're busy. They're getting up, they're getting ready to go to work, they're taking the kids to school. Maybe they're finding time to go to the gym. Mornings are hectic; they're busy. And mo- and some of my clients say, "I'm eating at 8 a.m. and then I'm starving." by 9.30. And a lot of people feel a lot of guilt about being hungry and wanting to have a snack because diet culture says that snacking is always unhealthy. But that's not really intuitive if we're ignoring that hunger signal, because what's going to happen if you restrict yourself until lunch? You're going to feel even more hungry and you're probably going to eat even more until probably past your comfortable fullness because you didn't give yourself that allowance to eat earlier in the day. Mm -hmm. So snacking isn't inherently bad. It's really just your body's way of saying like, hey, I'm hungry. (laughs) You haven't fed me enough. I need more energy. So I, I would never not recommend snacking. Actually, a lot of the work that I do with my clients when we're talking about snacks is kind of giving guidance to my clients about what a balanced snack looks like. So if we go sort of with a standard example of when someone gets hungry and wants to have a snack, they go into the snack cabinet and they'll eat maybe an entire bag of chips and they end up feeling kind of crappy afterwards. I'm not going to say that they are not allowed to eat chips. But what if instead we found a new way to incorporate chips into a balanced snack, like not having the entire bag of chips, but having some chips and pairing it with a protein, fat, a fiber, something like that, like some chips and a handful of nuts or some chips and an apple with peanut butter. That is actually going to be more healthy for you because you're allowing yourself to have the foods that you enjoy and you're going to feel better and more energized when you pair it with another nutritious item so i i love snacking i'm a snacker myself but it's always just it's it's good to reflect on sort of what you're eating how you're feeling and making sure it's a balanced snack in general I snack as well and usually
0: when i want a snack I have two ways, like two patterns. Healthy and not healthy, like in my way. Because yeah. I know if I take, if I eat something sweet, I will be hungry two times more. Mm-hmm. Even if it's a, when it's just a fruit or like a persimmon or apple or some um, bar, healthy bar, I know that uh, 30 minutes later I will be hungry and I will crave more and more. Or if I take some protein, Uh, snack uh, something with hummus or eggs bread and not sweet I know that it will help me longer because of these glucose spikes insulin spikes and uh, when it's not something sweet I will I will not have
2: this ups and downs all the time yeah yeah and that's something I that's where a lot of that guidance comes into play of if you're just having stray carbs to the system it might give short-term satisfaction but you're going to feel hungry afterwards. So, having some carbs with paired with a protein, fat or fiber, it's going to help minimize that glucose spike. It's going and it's just going to help you keep you energized and keep you full for longer.
1: Yeah, it's actually what I was trying to do. Like whenever I wanted to have some snack, something sweet or uh, carb-based, uh, starchy, I would uh, eat something uh, with fiber first like vegetables Mm -hmm. or something like this yeah yeah after reading reading this book uh, glucose revolution Mm -hmm. i was quite inspired and just wanted to see if it works for me so uh, i can say that it works yeah
2: that's great that's great
1: yeah also a question uh sometimes sometimes i like to buy ice cream uh covered with chocolate and i would eat only chocolate cover and the rest i would throw away do you think I am a, a sick person?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I would never say that. But I would, it's like, bring the ice cream over to my place. I'll take the rest of it. I'm more so sad for the ice cream. you
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, think mean, I have some disorders, like uh, when eating only color, chocolate color, but throwing the rest away.
2: Wow. Huh.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's interesting. That's interesting. I don't have an answer for you there.
0: <laughs> I gave my answer to Dmitry when he shared that, that he needs to get a girlfriend who can eat this rest of ice cream. Who yes. doesn't need yes. chocolate, but only the rest, this middle part. That's my solution.
2: <laughs> I I think that's a great solution. It's kind of like the olive theory from how I met your mother. Like, <laughs> one, it's one half of the relationship doesn't like olives, the other half of the relationship likes the olives <laughs> it only works that way
1: <laughs> yeah and I have like another case uh, like in uh, Lithuania there is some traditional food uh, it's pastry and usually it's like, a, it's like a small wrap of dough and inside there is some filling of vegetables some uh, maybe cheese with spinach and on the top there is like a corner and it's really crispy you know And what I would do, I would buy them, like a few of them, but let's say five, maybe, yeah, even five. I would eat the top corner that is crispy, and I would eat filling, and rest I would just throw away. Oh, my gosh.
2: I guess it's whatever people prefer. (laughs) But you need to find somebody else to have the leftovers.
1: (laughs) I really enjoy it, but sometimes I feel guilty for throwing away food, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah. You need to just give it to somebody else. <laughs> Have that be on your dating profile of <laughs> looking for somebody to eat the other half of my food.
1: <laughs> yeah, I would just look for people that, uh, if you want, they want to finish half my food.
0: <laughs> for me, it seems like actually a very healthy way to deal with food because I used to suffer from um, from the things that I was scared. Afraid to throw away my uh, throw my food to the bin, and I needed to finish everything. It it was such a culture cultural trauma for me because my grandparents they were born in war times and they used to eat till the end what they have. Oh, then I spent all my childhood with my grandparents and I needed to eat everything what I had on my plate and. Of course, it continued for many, many years when I was so full already, but I was scared to throw my food to the bin and didn't want to eat, even though I didn't want to eat more. And this approach, when you think about yourself more than about food, for me, it sounds super healthy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, both like not eating enough and then overstuffing yourself when, especially, and sort of having that. Um, especially like you said, kind of cultural and sort of generational um, relationship with food of you have to finish everything on your plate. Like yeah. I know even that was the case for me. I, I remember uh, sitting at my parents' table and them not letting me leave until I ate one more bite of green beans or something. Like I was probably just being a picky eater because I used to be a very picky eater, but going past your limits of fullness that's also not very healthy so it's sort of it's always nuanced so dmitra you're healthy (laughs)
1: yeah i know it's it's i really enjoy it because i get uh the the best part of of this of this food but sometimes you just realize that some people are actually craving for food and they need food because of lack of resources, but, yeah, that's what I'm doing.
2: Yeah. <laughs> okay,
1: Kristen. Kristen, alcohol, what is your take on this? Some people say it's healthy to have a glass of wine with meal, and it's totally fine, like uh, Dr. Daniel Aman or uh, other people like uh, Dr. Tim Spector. They have a different opinion because uh, Dr. Tim Spector, they, he says that uh, it's okay to have like red wine sometimes once in a while, but Dr. Daniel Amman, he says that even a bit of alcohol sometimes, it damages your brain cells. So I don't know who to believe. What should I do? <laughs> what should we do? Please help. <laughs> I,
2: if, if I had the absolute correct answer for this, I would be sharing my yacht and billions with you. <laughs> but I I would say in general there there are definitely more negatives to alcohol than there are positives. As with anything I'm going to go back to how it's your relationship with them. There I really don't think that there's enough data right now to say that alcohol is good for your gut health. I mean, of course, there's some data, like you said, with Tim Spector that says that having one glass of wine can be positive for your gut health. Um, whether one glass of wine can be damaging to your brain cells. I'm, I'm really not sure. The data is just so complex. And it's really hard to really pin down a black or white answer with this. Um, but in, in general, it's about your relationship with with the item. So if someone is, you know, occasionally socially enjoying a glass of wine or beer with friends, um, who am I to say that it's actually unhealthy because spending that time with friends, it's social. That's also good for your health. But of course, if someone's coping with their emotions with alcohol, binging on alcohol or, not having alcohol in moderation and you're getting more calories from alcohol than you're getting from food then it's not nutritious for you and it's not Mm. going to be good for you and it's going to be causing more harm than good so as with anything it all goes back to your relationship with it
1: yeah so once one beer uh, a week on the weekend friday evening it's okay it's okay yeah
2: (laughs) you don't have to stress
1: Okay, one beer is okay.
0: Dimitro, you don't drink uh, at all, as I say
1: remember, right? I drink, yeah. I still meet people sometimes in the bar and so just they keep their usual stuff they drink, but I just there to talk with them, so I don't drink.
2: Yeah, and I like some some people don't drink and are good with it. And some people do drink socially and they have a good, healthy relationship with it. So as long as whatever works for you and whatever you find is most beneficial for your health and your lifestyle, that's what works. Yeah, exactly.
0: Christian, and one of the last questions, what is your opinion on sugar? Is it dangerous as cocaine? Is it a true addiction? I saw once on your Instagram stories that you were buying uh, a milk, a chocolate bar. So you <laughs> are really okay with sugar or not
2: yeah i love this question uh so it's so with the the sugar cocaine studies i think it's it's probably pretty well known that there are these studies that have been done with rats where they were given the option of either having sugar water or cocaine water and the rats consistently kept coming back to the sugar water. So the assumption is made there that sugar is more addictive than cocaine because why would the rats keep going to the sugar and not the cocaine if sugar wasn't addictive? What isn't talked about enough though is that these rats weren't fed anything else during the study. So these rats were just trying to survive and they keep going back to the sugar because that's actually providing some nutrition for them to survive. Sugar is a carbohydrate. It's going to help keep like sustain them. Whereas the cocaine has zero nutritional value. And these um, I I read an article once that these studies also found that rats only had this addictive like behavior when it was restricted for the rats to only have sugar for two hours a day. So that's when it became really addictive. But if you allowed the sugar or if you allowed the rats to have sugar whenever they wanted it, the addiction like behavior stopped. And I found this to be so interesting because it's so similar to what I talk about with my clients, which is that the more we restrict ourselves from the foods that we enjoy and want to eat, the more obsessed and addictive, we become to them. So yeah, I'm going to buy a milk, chocolate bar because if I don't buy it, I am going to not stop thinking about it. And typically for for me personally, I'm not saying that what I do is better or worse, but I could buy a milk, chocolate bar and it'll sit in my fridge for two weeks because I'll just... I'll, I'll just have like one piece and that's fine because I know that I can come back to it at any time. I know that I can, I, I that's just sort of how I have formed my relationship around food is that I can take it when it feels good. I have that little satisfaction. I have that joy I'll put it back and I'll come back to it. Maybe I go, I'll go back to it later in the day. Maybe I'll go back to it in an hour. Maybe I'll go back to it in two days. Maybe it'll sit there for a week.
0: Uh, Kristen, I have... Inherently
2: nothing wrong with sugar. Kristen, I have
0: my personal story and question to you. So mm-hmm. sometimes it happens that I am craving, like especially before periods, during periods... A chocolate specific chocolate uh, that you can buy here in Germany so very easily in uh, DM or Rossmann it's kind of healthy chocolate because it's made from uh, coconut milk and coconut sugar, so it doesn't give you extreme sugar spikes um, glucose spikes but I love it's sweet I love this chocolate so much that I eat the whole bar full package of it like in one hour for example or in two hours. And uh I don't know what to do with it because it feels like addiction in this case. Mm. If I'm not finishing it, I'm sad and and I will sleep still, but still like with some troubles thinking about this chocolate that I didn't
2: finish. Mm. So if you if you don't finish it, it's sort of that's when the addiction comes in. That's when the obsession sort of comes Mm. in. Yeah. Yeah. So I would really sort of encourage you to reflect on that and think if you are actually like, are you having, are you only having this chocolate bar because you know your period's coming up, you're getting these cravings, but what would happen if you had, if you gave yourself the allowance to have that chocolate bar when you didn't have your period, when it wasn't a time that you typically do, when you, say, oh, I'm getting my period, so that means that I can have it. It almost sounds like maybe you're giving yourself excuses of why you're eating the chocolate bar, which then sort of creates this all-or-nothing response of, I have my period, I'm having these cravings, this is the time I'm allowing myself to have this chocolate bar, so I might as well eat the whole thing. But what if after your period, in the middle of your cycle, when you're feeling completely typical, Mm -hmm. and – you're just, you know, have kind of that sweet tooth. What if you did buy a chocolate bar? And because you know that it's still going to be there for you, maybe you would only be satisfied by having a piece or two. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I've definitely eaten an entire chocolate bar before. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But I... Maybe definitely take the time to reflect on your relationship with that chocolate bar and sort of if you maybe are still are having that all or nothing response related to it.
0: Uh, It Mm does not make sense because usually when it's uh, uh, PMS or when it's period, usually bodies were exhausted or Mm -hmm. just after work or some activities or just tough period. And usually I I buy this chocolate and I'm super exhausted. Mm -hmm. yeah and uh, so I eat everything to get this energy and instead Mm -hmm. of going to sleep having rest I eat sugar I uh, get uh, uh, I buy this chocolate so the thing is it's better just to have this chocolate all the time and to eat small pieces and, and not to buy it for the first periods when my energy is super low yeah Thank you for this yeah. tip.
2: <laughs> and even what I said before with the snacks, because it's like maybe include the chocolate bar in with your lunch, like have your entire your entire typical lunch and then have a piece of chocolate also on your plate. Because then you're not you're not putting You're not putting like special powers into the chocolate. You're not saying, oh, this is a special thing. It's just part of your lunch. It kind of Mm -hmm. creates that neutral stance with the food. So then you're not thinking about it as something special, as something that's maybe bad for you or something that's only for this period of time. Just kind of practicing that more neutral stance might could possibly be beneficial. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: What do you think would happen if people? make sugar illegal?
2: So I don't think that we could ever make sugar illegal. It's insane. Let's imagine, let's imagine. Imagine. So are, so there's, so my, at the end of the day, sugar is a carbohydrate. So if we made all sugars illegal, then all carbs would be illegal. And I don't know if our human race would be able to survive. <laughs> so, well, um, and of course, that, that's the extreme example um, because, like, at, if you eat a potato, a potato's natural, but when it's broken down into your body, it's broken down into sugars. It's a carbohydrate. If we're okay. talking about our, our uh, artificial uh, sugars,
1: yeah, yeah, I meant uh, illegal uh, added sugar.
2: Added sugar. Oh, that would be that would be tough. Um, I'm not sure what I don't know that if if people if all sugar was illegal, I'm sure we would find something else to demonize. <laughs> I'm sure we would find something else to sort of put on a pedestal <laughs> and we would be talking about, I don't know, are avocados more addictive than cocaine. We'd find something else to think about.
1: <laughs> okay, boom. there's
2: there are so many things that give us come
0: some kind of addiction. Cheese can be addictive too. Um, oh
1: yeah. yeah.
2: Oh <laughs> exercise can be addictive, eating can be addictive, alcohol can be addictive. It's it's anything.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay, Tristan, one last question. What message would you like to convey to our listeners who want to have a more healthier and want to stress out less about food?
2: So, what I would <laughs> love to convey to your listeners is that it doesn't matter what goals you may have for your health or what medical conditions you may have. At the end of the day, your relationship with food is always going to be the most important thing and what's going to make the biggest impact on your life. This shift in mentality puts the pressure in their hands. It puts the power in in their hands, because they are now in control of what they're eating. Instead of saying, society's in control of what I eat, diet culture, whoever, instead of them being in control of you, you have the power to make informed decisions about your health. Because typically we're told, oh, if I cut out carbs or if I try this new weight loss shake, or if I go to this Pilates class, then I will lose weight and then I will be healthy. So instead of putting the emphasis on those outside factors, it's really important to actually look at yourself, look at how your body is responding in certain scenarios. And that's really what I do with my clients is I work on helping them find ways to nourish nourish themselves, to feel good, to feel energized, to be able to do the sports they want, think clearly And at the end of the day, just make informed decisions about their own personal health. So if I can leave your listeners with anything, it's that if you want to work on your health, what you first have to do is evaluate your relationship with food and the rest will fall into place. Amazing. Thanks so much. It
1: was was so so fun.
0: Thank you (laughs) so much. Thank you for having me. This is amazing <laughs> uh, if our listeners will have any questions we will add all the links uh, on your instagram on your website Sounds so great. they can connect with you and ask some questions it was a very valuable interesting and inspiring conversation for mm-hmm. us yeah and yeah as and you're our first guest on our podcast thank you thank you for texting me thank you so much for texting me with your idea that uh why not to join of course why not
2: because it was so great yeah i'm so happy to be here so happy you had me on this was this is so so fun
1: yeah guys i really hope you enjoyed this conversation if you have like any uh question regarding food or even some disorders Christian is here to help you, because I personally learned a lot during this conversation and I'm really grateful for this moment. Thank you, Christian.
0: Thank you. Thank
1: you. If you enjoyed this video and want to stay updated with our future content and support what we are doing, don't forget to give it a thumbs up, hit the subscribe button and ring the notification bell so you will never miss out on our latest videos.